Welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is, I am losing count, I think it's the 14th No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles podcast concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, the failure of animal welfare reform, the importance of veganism as a moral baseline, and the notion of ahimsa or nonviolence as a motivating and directing force in all of our advocacy efforts. This week, I have with me Roger Yates, who uh, is a sociologist. Dr. Yates teaches at University College in Dublin and at the University of Wales in Bangor. And Vincent Kahane, who is a almost doctor. He's a Ph.D. student at Carleton University, uh, where he's in the Cultural Mediations Program. And I have to tell you, uh, I would have had Vincent on the podcast before, but I have to, I, I'm now going to confess a prejudice as to why he hasn't been on before. I thought Vincent was doing his doctorate in, in comp lit, in comparative literature. And um, I don't recognize that as a legitimate discipline, so I I wasn't gonna <laughs> I, I wasn't gonna have I'm only kidding. For those of you who have comp lit degrees, I'm just joking. Um, it's almost and, as bad as sociology. It, well, no, not quite. <laughs> no, at least at least at least religious studies. Yeah, reli- no, actually, actually, the, the worst thing is you know I'm doing my I'm doing my degree in the virtues of postmodernism. Then then I I think. Um, you should not only not be on my podcast, but I think you should be sent exiled someplace bad. Um, but he, he, he has now explained to me he's in the cultural mediations program where what he's doing, what his particular project is, is, is looking at Canadian novels and the concept of non-animal personhood in those novels and to see how, how the concept of animal personhood is, is, is developing, changing, and what it says about the human-non-human animal relationship um, in literature, and I think that that's really, really fascinating. I, are you are you at the stage yet where you're doing your dissertation? Yes, I am. Ah, well, that's good. I'm. I I hope to. I I look forward to reading it. So I hope you'll send it to me okay. whenever uh, whenever it's uh, available for people to read. Um, what we're going to talk about this week is uh, whether the tide is turning, and whether or not things are changing and moving in the direction of abolition and veganism as a moral baseline. Uh, you know from the past several podcasts that um, that I had uh, in which uh, Roger Yates was also a guest along with Elizabeth Collins, we talked about the two segments of One Planet, Animals and Us, that was uh, broadcast on the BBC World Service, which is the most widely listened to radio program on the planet. Uh, the program was uh, done by Victor Schoenfeld, who did the 1982 film, uh, The Animals Film. And, and I have to say something, you know, everyone always talks about animal liberation as being, you know, the, the influential thing that, uh, of, of, the, of the, modern, uh, the modern animal movement. Well, putting aside the fact that animal liberation is not a book about animal rights at all, um, I, I don't doubt that animal liberation had a great influence in a lot of ways. But I also think the animals film had a tremendous influence on a lot of people. Uh, and and uh, in, in that, it was the first time that, that uh, people saw how animals were used. And unlike a lot of what we see now, uh, where, where you know, these organizations put out 
videos showing various abuses of uh, of animals in institutionalized settings. There's no such thing as a, a non-abusive uh, use of animals in these institutionalized settings, but but where they're depicting what's supposed to be sort of the system gone wrong, and and um, and what what was really good about the animals film is it was a film about how animals are treated uh, in vivisection and in farming within the system when the system's functioning properly and it was bad given that and that's one of the and i and i think that was a really important point that the animals film made um was that even when the system's working properly uh it it fails it's shocking it's horrible and i i would go so far as to say that the animals film certainly was um I think for many people, as influential as animal liberation in terms of forming ideas that that um, you know led us to reconceptualize uh, the human non-human relationship. Uh, and Roger, you 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 were around back then. Would you agree? I mean, I, I with with my assessment of the importance of the animals film. Yes, I certainly do. Um, I was uh, based in Britain at the time, and uh, it, it was a big impact there. Um, the, the grassroots in particular t- took it on, really, and um, uh, yeah, it's a cinema li- release. If you get the DVD of the Animals film, uh, there's a really good interview, actually, with Victor Schoenfeld as part of the DVD package. It's very much logical, too, in actual fact. And he even explains um, the way that um, it, it was produced and the reason why uh, you know all the cartoons and the vox pops and everything w- w- were put in there. And, it, of course, it was a cinema release. I mean, it's two and a half hours long. I mean, it's incredible kind of length, in, in a sense. And yet it's not boring, and also it's not uh, too full-on, if you like. In fact, that's what he explained in the DVD, that um, he didn't want just to kind of create a horror film with, with people kind of running out after, uh, after five minutes, which is, you know, the, the way the style... the style. In actual fact, it's interesting, really, if you think, think about people like Michael Moore, the style of the animal's film... If, if uh, young advocates, because I, kn- I know a lot, a lot of um, animal advocates of, of this day and age, they've, they've all watched Earthling. The very few have, have, have watched the animals film. And if they did, I think they'd see the style and they think, oh, well, th- this is pretty normal. But, but it, it was the kind of first time that that kind of thing was done. But, um, at least it was kind of fairly groundbreaking at the time. Um, and so the, the grassroots took it on. And um, what, what tended to happen there is that we, we had special showings all, all around the country. And then uh, what uh, Schoenfeld allowed to happen was that the grassroots people were, were able to present them. So they were able to give a speech uh, afterwards or before. And then I think uh, it, it was responsible for a lot of people joining the grassroots movement as well as the national groups. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, anyway, so Victor did this two-part segment on, um, uh, on, on BBC World Service, Animals and Us. And the second segment dealt with vivisection, but he ended it with uh, a call for crystal clarity in principles. Uh, he 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 recognized that the movement was failing and that wasn't it wasn't making much progress. And he he um, recognized or acknowledged the need for really clear principles to to move us forward. And what he focused on was the notion of veganism as a moral baseline. And he included um, some of the interview that he did with me, in which I talk about the importance of veganism as a moral baseline. And I was really quite, 
quite a surprise because I had no idea that was coming um, when I was listening to the segment. Uh, you know, I, I had not been told before. Uh, I was listening to it uh, just like everyone else was uh, for the first time, and I was really surprised um, that 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 Victor included that, and I was delighted, obviously. And then Victor did a uh, an editorial in the. Uh, Guardian, which is uh, one of the leading newspapers in the United Kingdom and represents a more progressive view, and um, what uh, what he's you know in in, in this uh, in this editorial, uh, which is called the five uh, the I'm just pulling it up here the five fatal flaws of animal activism. Um, he talks about how you know he was a vegetarian for a long time, for you know m- much of his life, and that it was that that was a, a very important uh, a thing to him. And he talked about why he didn't become a vegan and and, um, and whatnot. And then um, he, um, he he says he talks about how now in the 21st century uh, it's time for vegans to become vocal. Even free-range eggs and organic milk production entail significant suffering, and the animals are killed when their productivity goes down. And so, again, in the Guardian, he he uh, and he talks about he uses again uh, the uh, the notion of veganism as the moral baseline, and he identifies uh, five uh, flaws in in the animal rights movement. Uh, the five flaws are the animal rights movement is not joining with other progressive social movements. Uh, the second flaw, which is related to the first flaw, indeed, not only does it not join with other progressive social movements and tries to go it alone, but it actually engages in sexist uh, uh, campaigning, uh, which alienates progressive people. Uh, that the animal rights movement hands out awards and praises uh, animal exploiters, gives awards to uh, slaughterhouse uh, designers. I, I don't know whether you all know, but Home Box Office is um, is going to have a a movie, a dramatic film. Uh, starring Claire Danes uh, in the role of Temple Grandin. It's coming out in February, uh, and um, and I, I I understand that they're going to then be following up, and they're going to be doing a musical comedy on the life of Herman Goering, who um, who who, desi- <laughs> who who designed the death uh, death camps in the Second World War. But in any event, um, but that they give out awards to uh, people like Grandin, uh, and that they praise fast food restaurants, um, and that uh, they're the fourth problem is is that they're actually promoting animal products with uh, things like the RSPCA Freedom Food Label, uh, the uh, Whole Food Compassionate, Animal Compassionate Label, uh, the uh, the Certified Humane Raised and uh, Handled Label uh, that uh, is supported by a lot of the groups in the United States, including the Humane Society. Uh, and... Um, and and the fifth problem that uh, uh, is that basically the animal movement lacks a strategy, and that it's really time now to to uh, 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 change that. And the way he proposes we change that is to start becoming vocal about veganism. And um, this was followed three days later in the Guardian by Ingrid Newkirk. Uh, who did an essay called The Pragmatic Fight for Animal Rights, in which she defends, uh, she makes two major points. She, she defends animal welfare reform, and she, she, she basically says PETA 
pursues welfare reform. PETA is a welfareist organization, uh, but you know we're really trying to move it in the direction of abolition. This is what I call new welfareism in my book, Rain Without Thunder, in 1996. Um, this idea that we're going to get you know to some good point by uh, incrementally through welfare reform. She repeats that. Uh, and she, and then she goes on to say the sex, she defends the sexism as being well, you know, just harmless antics, and it puts a smile on people's face. And what difference does it make? Um, and I saw this, and that's what I want to talk with you two about today. I saw, I, I, I think what Schoenfeld has done is remarkable. Uh, I mean, he's a guy. You know, he makes the Animals film in 1982. He then goes off and does other things. He comes back 27 years later. He's a disinterested party. Uh, he takes a look at the movement and says it. It's not going anywhere, uh, and he he quickly, clearly identifies the problems with new welfareism, the problems with using sexism uh, to promote animal rights, and 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 he concludes none of this is working, and we really ought to pursue veganism as a moral baseline, and then Newkirk jumps in and says no. Um, uh, we ought to be pursuing welfare reform, and it's quite all right for us to be using sexism. It's all harmless. And I thought this was interesting because it indicates to me that um, the large groups are starting to understand now that the tide is changing, the tide is turning, that there is a grassroots movement, and it's, it's, it's developing all over the world, um, and that it's basically cynical about these large groups um, recognizing that they're businesses, uh, recognizing that they are in bed with institutional producers, recognizing that they're promoting animal products, recognizing that they're really going about this the wrong way and that they're basically part of the problem, not part of the solution, and that we really do need to sort of reorient ourselves toward, um, uh, you know, really a dynamic veganism, uh, you know, veganism and creative, nonviolent vegan education. I thought this was really remarkable, and I don't know if that's just my my optimism, but I want you, I'm doing a reality check, so guys, tell me, is it um, is it just my optimism, or is there something going on here? Well, I think Schoenfeld's program and his Peace in the Guardian do two important things. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think first, uh, they make it absolutely clear that the public is ready to hear about veganism, and Second, it exposes the vulnerability of an organization like PETA to criticism. I worked as a freelance journalist for a little while earlier in my career, and I can say that the BBC uh, wouldn't be airing Schoenfeld's program, the Guardian wouldn't have run Schoenfeld's piece, they wouldn't be allowing Ingrid Newkirk to reply and so on, unless these ideas were ready for the public. I'd say the same thing is true about Gary Steiner's piece in the New York Times. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely, around Thanksgiving. In fact, uh, I would say uh, it's more than just the public being ready, uh, but being interested in these things. I mean, the Happy Meat Movement is a good example. I mean, that's a wide public phenomenon because people are interested in, in solving what amounts to a, a fairly important ethical dilemma in their lives. And industry has told them, and uh, the welfare part of the industry has told them, uh, you can solve it with Happy Meat. Uh, but more important, major publications with massive audiences just aren't going to publish this kind of stuff if they feel there's no audience for it or if they felt it's going to alienate their audiences. But yes, I, I'd say this reflects a very serious change uh, that's been ongoing for a while. And second, uh, PETA has responded in this instance, I'd say, because Schoenfeld's piece has forced them to do so. I don't think there can be any doubt that Schoenfeld's piece seriously spooked PETA into a response. Large organizations, not just PETA, 
uh, but most groups uh, in the U.S. have worked diligently from a public relations standpoint to ensure that the o- theirs are the only voices, theirs are the only messages that are heard by the public. They try to create an intellectual vacuum. They rely on agreement. They coerce silence. Uh, and they've done a tremendous job silencing the advocacy community by convincing advocates that there is no alternative but to repeat um, the official party lines of national organizations and their figureheads. Schoenfeld, in contrast, is someone who's not affiliated with anyone who, as you said, was, he is disinterested in the various political eddies of uh, the advocacy movement. He's really only interested in what's right for non-human animals, and he's looked at the situation, said, forget these antics, drop this sexism, let's start speaking honestly, sincerely, and directly about veganism as a baseline uh, if we want to help non-human animals. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's someone looking uh, from the inside, from the outside in, and saying welfare groups are doing it wrong. Although his piece in the Guardian deals with uh, PETA largely, I think his criticism applies to uh, HSUS, Vegan Outreach, Eric Marcus, all of those businesses and figureheads who are not promoting veganism as a baseline. Um, Sean is basically telling them you're doing it wrong, and that's a powerful statement to make. Uh, I think it reflects a real change. And I think he was absolutely right. Well, he was. He actually. Uh, he actually was. Uh, he had HSUS in um, in the first segment of the BBC program, Animals and Us. He interviewed Wayne Purcell, um, who, um, in my judgment, didn't didn't come off looking terribly terribly good in terms of, uh, of 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 defending welfare reform. And so it was. It's and, and even though he was he was um, uh, he, he was. He seemed to think that the Austrian situation was a little bit different, uh, and he he uh, but but in both the BBC program and particularly in the Guardian piece, he was very clear that he that he thought that although the Austrian situation may be a little bit different, the bottom line is it's really it, 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 it's also a failure. It's just like slightly less of a failure rather than characterizing it as um, a partial success. I think what he was saying is that it wasn't it wasn't quite as bad a failure as some of these other. Situations. Yeah, I mean that's how I think about it as well. Um, I agree largely uh, with um, with Vincent's analysis. Obviously, um, I think what's going on here is that the Peter piece in the Guardian is very defensive, but they felt they must uh, respond um, because of the person who was uh, attacking them. Uh, essentially, what we've had is is uh, someone who got involved with the issue of uh, animal treatment and animal use in the 1970s, made the animals film in the 1980s, went away for a while, came back and said, right, let's now, let, let's take a look at the movement that, uh, you know, I played some part in uh, uh, in inspiring. And uh, you can tell really from the programs and also from the piece that he wasn't very impressed about what he found when he came back. And... Um, what was striking to me was, that, as you say, Gary, he points to Austria um, as the best we've got, uh, but that's not very much in the end uh, as well, uh, you know, which is quite interesting. Uh, but the other side of that is that he doesn't point to Peter, who are characterized as the biggest and the most influential animal rights group in the entire world. He, they don't even get a mention. Uh, you know, so I mean, that's a quite a damning thing that um, his assessment 27 years later from the animal film doesn't even mention them. And so, you know, Ingrid Newkirk is going to have to respond to that. And it's very, very defensive, as we see. 
Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting, you know. She, she, um, uh, something really hit me when I read Ingrid's um, Ingrid's piece, uh, and, and that is, she, she references Peter Singer, and she says, you know, Peter Singer supports the their yeah, pra- yeah she calls him the practical philosopher but just peter singer supports their position because he's basically saying you know isn't it better if we make the animals suffer less etc cetera, etc cetera. first of all obviously um newkirk does not and never has uh address the problem that animal welfare reform because animals are property animal welfare reform is generally accepted only when it provides some sort of economic benefit for us and and that 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 model that i first described in animals property in the law holds for basically not 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 all but but most most animal welfare reforms fit that model perfectly uh in that uh, they make animal they make they make the 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 exploitation of animals more efficient and she doesn't deal with that at all of course none of them does i mean none of them does because they can't but what i thought was interesting was um it, it really occurred to me how close newkirk and singer really are in their basic you know their fundamental ideology uh the animal welfare movement was founded in the 19th century by people who believed that uh, although animal suffering mattered, animal use didn't. And that we could use animals because they didn't have an interest in their lives. They just had an interest in not suffering. As long as we didn't make them suffer too much, our using them was not a problem. And that's really Singer's position. I mean, Singer, Singer's position is really no different from Bentham's position. Uh, Singer, Singer does not think that most animals with the, you know, he, he exempts the non-human great apes and perhaps dolphins. But he basically says that, that, that most of the animals we eat, and he particularly has this prejudice about chickens, uh, he thinks they don't really have an interest in their lives. Uh, they don't have a. They, they they they're they're not self-aware. They don't have an interest in their lives. So therefore, killing them is not uh, imposing a harm on them. And and he says this. I mean, he you know he 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 says this uh, in a number of places. This is not any sort of secret. And it's very very clear that uh, PETA has the same view because that explains why uh, they don't have a problem with. Uh, killing healthy animals. I mean, they, they uh, according to Newsweek magazine, uh, they kill 85% of the animals that they rescue, quote, rescue, end quote. And uh, as, I, uh, as I discussed in my, in my book, Rain Without Thunder, in the 1990s, uh, they were killing animals. They had a no-kill shelter called Aspen Hill, and they were killing healthy animals there. So this has been going on for a long time. And, and I, I, um, I suspect that uh, there is some agreement with Singer's position that a uh, a quote humane end quote death is really not a harm for an animal because unlike us they don't have a sense of the future so they don't really care whether we kill and use them uh, they only care about how we treat them now that of course is wrong uh, and and I I explain that um, in several of the things that I've written I mean even if I can if I if I went to someone's house while they were sleeping and I killed them painlessly while they were sleeping I, I would still be imposing a harm on them uh, and the notion that um, we don't impose a harm on animals when we kill them uh, is, is, is crazy. The idea that animals don't have any interest in living strikes me as such an odd position to take a particularly odd position to take for someone who's called the father of the animal rights movement um, and a particularly odd position for someone like Newkirk to take uh, you know the idea that taking taking the life of an animal is not something that presents a problem uh, is is as long as it's done humanely 
is is just so very bizarre to me. But I, I really think actually that is um, that that's what's going on here, and that's why I think uh, these folks have. I think that's that's one of the reasons why these folks embrace welfare reform. They don't understand the economic problem. They really don't. They don't understand um, economics 101, uh, and they don't understand that welfare reform is always going to be uh, limited because of the chattel status because the, because of the status of animals as economic commodities it's always going to be limited and it's always going to provide very little protection for animals uh and and they they just don't recognize that and and um and and i i but i suspect that's really what's going on here is they think that animal welfare reform really can make some significant progress and it and if it does that's great because it really doesn't matter that we keep on eating them because as long as we don't make them suffer too much, as long as we raise them in a relatively pleasant environment, and as long as we kill them in a relatively painless way, we're really not doing anything wrong. And and that's that that I think is is the position. That's certainly the position that Singer articulates. And um, and I, and I think uh, it's it's well, the yeah. Position. And also, Gary, I mean, you 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 were talking about how um, influential animal liberation was as a text and still is. Uh, in fact, sociological studies of that have, have shown that when, when you do a survey about that, most uh, animal advocates have either got animal liberation or read it, but very few have, have read um, and any other philosophical work. And I think it's quite telling also that uh, Peter Singer is the only philosopher mentioned in uh, Ingrid Newcook's piece. I do, I do think that they're the only philosopher that Peter could have because of their view of, of non-humans. But the, the interesting thing, I guess, is that what ought to be pointed out, if you like, in defense of Singer, is that he's been consistent all the way through. Even in animal liberation, he was saying that he can't really come up with a moral argument against free-range eggs. You know, so he is consistent. Remember a couple of years ago, oh, when yeah. he, he, got, he got into trouble um, when he was debating the um, vivisector called Tippy as is. And uh, obviously, he, 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 said, he said also in, in the book, you know, uh, not all uh, experiments are, are going to be ruled out either. Um, and so he's just been um, putting forward, expounding a consistent view right from the 70s. It's just that um, animal advocates have, have not uh, latched onto that and have been quite happy to regard him as a part of the, of the animal rights movement. Uh, and that's the, the, the situation right now. It's a situation that um, I, I think that, in all honesty, Peter should address. I've, I've asked them um, myself to stop calling uh, Animal Liberation an Animal Rights book. Uh, I actually got a uh, petition about that. Um, because um, if you go to the U.S. site, you can, you can see a flag which says, Why Animal Rights? You click on that and it goes to Animal Liberation. It, it concerns me greatly. On, on the grounds that uh, I feel that um, people, students, college students, uh, school kids doing their art rights project are going to go to Peter. It's, it's, it's a well-known brand. And they're going to then be directed to, to Singer. And so that means that the message of animal rights is distorted. Well, yeah, and, and you're right to say Singer has been, has been um, consistent about it. Uh, the problem is that Singer is very, very happy to sort of continue to be called the father of the animal rights movement. Singer is very happy to, um, you know, I mean, he, he, 
I find that a little bit disturbing that he sort of continues to sort of bask. I mean, he uses it. I mean, he uses it on on his own promotional materials. I mean, he continues to use that expression, um, which he says, well, it's a shorthand expression, but nevertheless, he knows it's causing a lot of confusion. But you're right; he's been consistent, um, and 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 it's it is remarkable the number of times you know you, you know there's no animal advocate I've ever met that doesn't have animal liberation, but I don't know very many who have read it. Because whenever I say it's not a book about animal rights, or it's a book in which he distinguishes between killing and suffering, and basically says that you know suffering's a problem, but you know, it, it, but 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 uh, killing uh, is uh, is it may not be a problem, or he can't come up with an argument against free-range eggs or whatever that he says those things in the book. They say, "Are you kidding? You're joking." I not in my edition, and I say, "Well, you know, you obviously haven't read it because it's not an animal rights book. It's not a book which which." Uh, uh, requires the abolition of animal exploitation. Indeed, it's a book which which um, promotes animal exploitation of a certain sort. That basically, what he's calling for is he wants animals to have a reasonably pleasant life, a relatively painless death. That's what he wants. Indeed, as a utilitarian, as a utilitarian, it seems he's almost committed to saying that we ought to be bringing into existence as many animals as we possibly can. And giving them, you know, and 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 uh, uh, as long as they have pleasant lives, we ought to be we ought to be bringing into existence as many as we can, and killing them as painlessly as we can, and bringing more and more and more and more and more into existence, because that's what a utilitarian would uh, that's what a utilitarian would want to have happen. But um, in any event, Vincent, um, what thoughts do you have about this this whole business with PETA and Singer and and all of these groups and whatnot? Because I know you know, you have a very finely tuned sense as to the the dynamics of the movement? Well, I think, uh, just go back to something that Roger mentioned, uh, which I think is true. I, I, I mean, I think that PETA, there's a lot of rational incentive for Singer to not rebut too much of his um, praise from PETA. And I think that there's a rational incentive for PETA to point to Singer, um, because I think that Singer is a thinker who justifies what amounts to their business decisions. Your work, Tom Regan's work, I don't think it justifies his decision to kill tens of thousands of animals since '98. And that, you know, referring back to the Newsweek article that you mentioned, I don't believe these groups are interested in or motivated by philosophy so much as business and marketing. Myself, uh, you know, I'm a materialist. I look at these things from an economic standpoint. Uh, and I think it provides them with a veneer of philosophical acceptability. But what I think these organizations are really interested in doing is creating a series of lifestyle badges that allow people to feel that they made a difference by making a donation or dressing up in a chicken suit or handing out uh, you know, a couple of Kovach pamphlets. They're not really all that interested in what's best for non-human animals. Or uh, they've conflated so deeply um, themselves, their own movement, with uh, what's best for animals that they can no longer tell the difference. I, I'm honestly not sure which, but I think it is largely an economic phenomenon. Anyhow, that's my take on it. I mean, it's it's interesting how it's also interesting how um, when Peter first started, it was you know very very different from the Humane Society of the United States. I mean, HSUS was a very different organization from PETA. And and uh, I remember those those days quite well because, um, y- you know, it was during the 1980s, before I started really th- thinking critically uh, about the rights-welfare distinction, um, 
you, you know, uh, we, we used to. It was a relatively small community, uh, and and we used to get together a lot, and and you know, so it would it would not be uncommon for uh, PETA people to be socializing with people from HSUS or from the Animal Welfare Institute or or whatever, and and um, and there were real differences uh, in in the the, the the these organizations, uh, and PETA being really different from all of them, and now now it's. Um, seems to me that there's not a lot of difference between uh, PETA and HSUS. Uh, and no, I agree. I mean, I think that speaks to a broader uh, and ongoing trend in the, uh, the welfare industry. And it's been going on for years. It's, I don't think it's particularly new. I think it's just sort of coming to a head now, uh, which is that the industry is large enough and that there's enough competition for donors and volunteers and money that it's quickly shaping up into three basic factions, and that's a sphere of influence led by HSUS, and that includes groups and figureheads like PETA, um, Vegan Outreach, Eric Marcus, um, COK, and these, they're all sort of, it's interesting, there's a sort of a coalescence around the Human Research Council, because a lot of, there's a member from um, Vegan Outreach on the board, there's a member from HSUS on the board, uh, and it's all very new well for us. There's a real love in um, but by the way, I, I, by the way, before you continue, I, this is great. I just want to want to interject. I thought it was fascinating that you had vegan outreach. Vegan outreach was came out against Victor Schoenfeld's oh, yeah, yeah. call for veganism. I mean, isn't that just remarkable? <laughs> oh well, you know, well, sadly not, unfortunately, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead. I'm uh, sorry, Vince. It, I'm sorry. It, You're... It, yeah, it's an extremely sad thing. Um, uh, but the second faction are, uh, what I would say, are, are new welfare groups. And some of them are militants, some of them are non-militants, some of them are actually traditional welfare groups. Uh, but what they don't want to do is come under HSUS's uh, sphere of influence for whatever reasons. Uh, it might be economic, it might be uh, ideological, it's really hard to say. And, of course, I think abolitionists make up a third faction. And uh, it goes without saying, I think, that there are a lot of advocates who see themselves as being in the middle um, I'll break out my 25 cent vocabulary word at this point and use the word hegemony. Yay! Um, yeah, <laughs> because of the grandest, uh, hegemony is one of my favorite words. Uh, and a lot of people you misuse. What, what, what was that word, uh, Vincent? Hegemony? All uh, oh, right, okay, sorry, I didn't catch it. <laughs> He's trying to get you to repeat it. Repeat what, Gary? Hegemony. Now, a lot of people misuse the term hegemony, uh, but in Gramsci's terms, it just means that a, a group is working towards building and leading a coalition of other groups with shared interests. And people sometimes use it as a synonym for authoritarianism, sometimes as a sort of a very um, lay synonym for fascism, and that's not really what Gramsci meant. But uh, what, what, for, um, for people, for the folks out there who don't know who Gramsci is, oh, why yeah. don't you ex- explain it briefly who? who? Uh, well, Gramsci was an important uh, Italian communist. And his work has become actually much more important in cultural studies since after the war. But he was put into prison. He wrote a bunch of prison notebooks. Uh, he was put in prison by uh, Mussolini for being a communist. Uh, uh, some of those people have been in prison, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think you have to go to prison to write a really great book uh, in some cases, but uh, not this way else. But anyhow, so Gramsci is a communist, and he, he's a very influential in cultural studies today. Uh, but he comes up with this notion of cultural hegemony, and what he suggests is that uh, 
change happens when a group becomes sufficiently powerful enough in order to order social relations. Um, so what they do is they organize other groups, other social groups, and Sean Phillips sort of indirectly talks a bit about this when he talks about um, animal rights, um, making relationships with other social groups. Um, but what hegemonic groups do is they create these coalitions and they come to power and they, they change social relations. So, for example, George Bush got to tell religious, social, and fiscal conservatives uh, what to do for about eight years, even though he also had uh, to make compromises in order to get their backing. Uh, and then, of course, they all told everyone else in the United States how to run their lives for uh, eight years. And that's sort of how hegemony works. Uh, there are meaningful moral and political battles for cultural hegemony. For example, Gramsci's own fight against the Italian fascists. Uh, but the battle in the welfare industry is not meaningfully different, I would say, from, say, Sony and Nintendo's battle for hegemony in the video games market or Coke and Pepsi's battle for hegemony in the soda market. It's it's really one business set against another set of businesses. Yeah, they all, they all become options. I mean, I think, uh, obviously, the companies are often used uh, nowadays. Um, could I just ask you a question, Gary? I, I remember you saying uh, on a podcast or an interview about in the early days of Peter, you were sat around a, a kitchen table with, with um, Ingrid and Alex, and maybe there was only two or three people there. I just wonder whether in those days, you know, when you saw this group develop, it went from a very kind of radical group you know, with some very kind of radical ideas and some radical slogans. And um, did you then get the impression that people were starting to say things like, um, well, you know, I think we're going to need an office, you know, and w what about a press, a press officer, and maybe we, we need uh, this and that and the other, and, you know, what, what about full-color leaflets rather than these black and white ones? Did you, did you get the impression that things moved into a kind of business-like uh, position uh, over the years? And one of the things, perhaps, that made you rather dis disillusioned with it. Well, I think in the beginning, when uh, they had no resources, um, I thought that they were tremendously effective, and it was a, a relatively small group of committed individuals. Um, and and uh, I mean, see, during the 1980s, the focus uh, was on these exposés. You know, it was on the 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 uh, you know the business that. What had gone on in uh, Taub's lab when you know Alex Pacheco got a job in a, a lab that was doing uh, work with um, with macaques and um, and 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 he got some video footage uh, and showed that in fact this was really horrible and it was being done improperly etc. And there was that expose. And then there was the University of Pennsylvania head injury experiments. There was that expose. And then there was the um, the the, the uh, baboons kept in a place in Maryland called SEMA that were being used for some sort of testing. I forgot what it was actually, but there you know these were exposés. These were these were largely you know uh, Peter was focusing on vivisection. And on exposés of vivisection, and 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 on and and that was the primary focus. Um, as a result of those campaigns, particularly the Taub campaign and the University of Pennsylvania head injury campaign, uh, PETA started getting a lot of attention. And I don't know that it was really any sort of deliberate decision that was made um, to to become a business. As a matter of fact, I think. Well into the 90s, um, PETA was still trying to remain faithful to 
some sort of, uh, of 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 different sort of approach to these issues because I remember Newkirk being very upset with Henry Spira, who uh, was he was now now dead, but uh, Henry Spira was an advocate uh, who was promoting the idea of working with the cosmetics industries, and he was getting uh, contributions from the cosmetics industry so that he could uh, start an alter, you know, so that he could finance alternatives to the Dre's test and, and those sorts of things, the LD50 and those sorts of tests. And I remember Newkirk being very upset with him. Yeah, he was he was working with Revlon and people like that. Yeah, yeah, he? yeah. And she was and she was very 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 angry about that. And she thought that was a very bad idea. And she was very critical of Henry for that. And and um, and I remember you know uh, discussions that were going on in PETA fairly you know fairly late about how uh, really. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be supporting welfare reform, and then all of a sudden things changed, um, and and uh, you know they they uh, by 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 the time that had happened, by the time they had really sort of become completely commercial, I was out of it because uh, I was I had problems with the sexism issues which started in the late 1980s. I had issues, I had very serious issues with the sexism thing. And and then uh, with the killing of healthy animals at Aspen Hill, I had super serious problems. And so by the time the mid '90s came around, uh, when when Peter really started shifting uh, and becoming a welfareist organization, I, I was I was no longer really part of it. Um, and and I mean I saw that it was getting bigger, and I was you know I I occasionally would visit and ha- but I wasn't really as involved as I was in the early days. So you know, it, it, but but it was it, it it very clearly. I mean it 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 very clearly um, it, it's seductive. Because you know people are throwing a lot of money at you, and you want to keep that money coming, and you start realizing that if you take uh, certain positions, if you if you promote veganism as a moral baseline, and you make it clear that that's what you know that's that's what you know what we have to work for, we have to work toward. You know, you can join the organization without being a vegan, but we all we want to be clear that there is nothing short of veganism which is morally acceptable, and we aren't going to promote anything short of veganism is morally acceptable. Then that's going to that's going to that's going to decrease your donor base. Yeah, well, you know that's why. Uh, I mean, in fact, uh, Vincent um, did a podcast about this about, about this uh, this weird concept which I really hate, and I think Vincent does as well. This notion of of vegan or because uh, I remember in the podcast. Okay. Uh, Vincent would say, "I'm not even. Uh, uh, how are we supposed to, um, you know, pr- even pronounce pronounce this thing? You know." Um, but the reason I asked you the question, Gary, is that there is some interesting sociology uh, about all of that, uh, in the sense that um, there is this theory called resource mobilization theory, which uh, kind of tries to uh, explain social movements in, in terms of, of becoming uh, a business or becoming an organization, and. Um, uh, there's some criticism of of, of the theory itself um, uh, uh, at the moment, but there is a kind of core to it, I think, which is quite interesting in in the light of uh, Peter. But just to give some background about the, the the sociology of social movements, when when sociology started to look at social movements, they, they were very critical of them. There was this this um, this idea that society itself has built-in mechanisms by which it, it would bring a problem back to equilibrium. And so therefore, a social movement shouldn't really be necessary. And so if people were forming the social movements and then protesting, then the theory, the theory kind of suggested that there's something wrong with them. 
then then we then we got into the 1960s and we had Vietnam and the civil rights movement and all, and all the rest of it and femi- the second wave of feminism and a lot of um, social movement theorists and especially their students uh, found themselves on demonstrations and their their theory was telling them that there was something pathological about going on a demonstration there's something wrong with you and, and they suddenly thought well wait a minute perhaps there's a problem with the theory and so what emerged from the rethinking uh, in Europe there was something called new, new social movement theory but in, in the States in particular there was a thing called uh, resource mobilization theory and that does kind of tend to explain some of the things that you've just said because um, what tends to happen is a small group of people with radical ideas they, 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 they start off in a kind of very grassroots uh, um, way, and then they start to think, well, you know, do we need an office, or do we need to, to have an official um, constitution uh, for, the, for this group, and do we need to grow? And then they start to get uh, uh, support. And then they start to have things like AGMs and uh, and um, EGMs and, and, and this kind of thing. And it becomes much more of a kind of business to the extent that some of the analysis suggests that one of the main functions of, of these uh, groups in the end is the perpetuation of the group. Uh, and what tends to happen then is that the radicalism that started it gets moderated and moderated away. And I think we can really see that uh, with Peter. Um, you might remember that uh, in the paper that we're working on, uh, Gary, there is um, some work that uh, I've cited by Richard Gale. And uh, Gale, even in, in the 1980s, is, is already updating resource mobilization theory because he says that it fails to adequately address the role of the state. Um, and in fact, he talks about state agencies, really. Uh, so we're talking about you know uh, agricultural agencies who, who have, have, have got a kind of uh, a relationship with the state, and uh, I've done some work on social movements and the counter movements uh, as a kind of dyad, if you like. But really, what this uh, what this um, theory is suggesting is that there's, there's a triad at work, which is social movements, counter movements to the social movement, and then the state or the state agency. So, so it's quite an interesting kind of thing. But also, what Gale says is that resource mobilization theory, in its crude sense, doesn't also account for movement change. But it did, in some respects in the sense that they expected movements to get bigger, but when they get bigger, they get flabbier. And also, when they get bigger, they start to moderate. And so we, we get a conflict between fundamentals and pragmatics. And it's interesting, given the, the title of Ingrid Newkirk's uh, piece in, in The Guardian, talking about pragmatics and how practical the philosopher of Peter Singer is. But the, the problem there is that the, the pragmatics are, the, are driving the moderation. And so, uh, you know, I can really kind of see how this theory is kind of explaining a lot of what's gone, gone on in Peter from the radical start when you were involved to this kind of flabby corporation position that it's in right now. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I remember in the, the mid-1980s, um, I, re- I started promoting this idea that we really ought to, you know, uh, be putting our resources. And I, and I was not talking just about PETA. I was talking, you know, I was I was trying to convince everybody I could that we ought to join. Everybody ought to join forces, sort of, in, and 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 promote veganism. That that was really was was going to shift the paradigm. That only only when we when we shifted the paradigm away from the notion of eating animals as the default position or eating animal products as the default position would things really change in any significant way and and 
in retrospect, I mean, people didn't like that idea. And, and I think in retrospect, it wasn't so much ideological as a recognition that if they do that, it's going to really mean a very small donor base. And it, it's, it's going to mean that, you know, we're going to stay small for a while, uh, for a long while, while we're trying to educate people about veganism. And, and, um, and we're not going to be able to, you know, we're not going to be able to grow. So I think, I think in a sense, it may not have been a conscious business decision, but there was probably, you know, uh, thoughts of how do we make the organ, you know, how, how do we get these organizations bigger? I mean, certainly one of the interesting things that happened fairly early on was PETA had, had chapters. You know, they, they were trying to encourage grassroots. They were trying to encourage the development when they first started. They were trying to encourage the development of a grassroots movement. And, and so they had chapters all over the place. And, and then they shut them down. They just shut them down, and everything became centralized. And and activism shifted gradually from uh, doing the work yourself and really being an activist and an advocate yourself to writing a check to PETA. And you know, and now now really that's that's what the new welfareist movement has done. It's turned everybody. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a direct parallel there with with the experience of the BAV. Uh, they they um, had kind of grassroots. Um, Campaigners, and I knew two or three of them whose job was to go around the country um, helping local groups set up. You know, that, that was the big thing in the early 80s, uh, a direct kind of parallel with, with what was going on with Peter in the early days as well. But I think you're right that they become very conscious of their donor base. And didn't uh, was it Dan Matthews? Yeah. It, um, yeah, who mentioned that. They, they were suddenly very aware of who was giving them the money. And so that fits perfect with the fact that they would they would choose to return, if you like, to the philosophy of Peter Singer because that that is the only philosophy that that, that could live, live with it, really. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's it's not it's now very clear that the movement is a business, and it's a business that functions. Um, the, the the mainstream movement is a is it's a business, uh, and it's got this sort of weird cultish aspect to it that you can't question anything. Uh, you know, any any question any questioning is is you know divisive, and uh, you're hurting the animals uh, if you question things or if you don't support welfareist reforms, you're hurting the animals, and it's all this culty nonsense. Um, but it really is a business, and it's a big business. I mean, it's it's a really big business. I mean, we're talking about organizations that are multi-million dollar organizations, and um, there are very few of them. I mean, there are very few of the large organizations, uh, you know, that, that I mean, uh, they're all they've they've all got tons of money and and I I I find it really um, offensive when you know you have like a the, the Haitian disaster and you have all these organizations now with with pictures of their people and their safari you know uh, apparently whenever you sort of are, are outside of the United States doing work you know you have to sort of wear safari clothing or whatever and and uh, but you know they're they're in in Haiti doing this work and you got little donate buttons and stuff like that I mean it really is obscene because these are organizations. That 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 some of them have you know uh, hundreds of millions of dollars and you know and 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 they're not doing stuff that they could be doing for animals in the United States. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, with the amount of money that the movement has, there shouldn't be a single animal in a single animal shelter anywhere. There shouldn't be 300 animals on pet, 300,000 animals on Pet Finder. Um, I mean, I just think that that's all that that that's that's wrong. But so they're they're not doing things for animals that they could could be doing in the United States. But they're out they're in Haiti and they're doing fundraising off. I mean, it's a very very effective powerful big money making machine and it functions uh, you know with the notion that 
people come home, they're tired, you know, it's a bad economy, a lot of people are working, you know, two jobs and they're still not making it, they're looking at all sorts of problems, they get home, they open their mail and there's this horrible picture of this animal, it's a horrible picture, and they feel that they've got to do something and and so even though they don't have a lot, they donate the money, you know, they donate their money to these organizations and so it really is, it's it's insidious in a lot of ways, it really is insidious and, um, and but it, I mean, I think, I think things are going to change. Uh, I think things are in the process of changing now, uh, and I think that uh, as the younger, as the the younger generation of animal advocates um, are now being exposed. You see, they weren't exposed to uh, any alternative thinking before the internet, uh, and before we were able to sort of start these these com- these, these these communities in cyberspace. Um, they weren't exposed. I mean, people who were interested in these ideas, uh, you know, if if depending on their orientation, you know, whether they were, you know, were they do- were they primarily people who were interested in in dogs and cats, whatever, and they would go off to HSUS, or were they people who sort of wanted to get into the sort of more supposedly radical end of things? They would go to PETA, and and um, you know, and then there were other 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 uh, uh, corporations that uh, you know that they could choose from that were you know that were minor variations from PETA or HSUS, and but that was it. That's how you know people got involved. Young people got involved. New people got involved by joining an organization, and then they got indoctrinated with the with the garbage from these. They got indoctrinated with the 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 um, the, the propaganda from the organizations, and um, and and that's that's what happened. Now I think the younger people and the newer people who are getting into this are seeing that there's a debate. And they may not all agree with the abolitionist approach, and that's fine. But um, they at least see that there's a debate, and I think a lot of them now are seeing through the the um, you know the the what is in essence the business of uh, of animal welfare, and um, and they recognize that it's not getting anywhere, and uh, they see they they see through it, and uh, and I think those are the people who are. Uh, uh, part of the abolitionist community these are the people who are doing their own advocacy work these are the people who don't accept the notion that writing a check is you know is is how we're going to make this all better and they are the people who realize that this is a this is a a piece of a much larger problem the problem of violence um and and i think that um we're seeing a greater recognition amongst a lot of these younger people that the animal rights movement is is really sort of part of a larger enterprise uh, that it really is it's part of the peace movement and it's part of the movement against violence and I think that a greater number of people are seeing you know uh, 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 that connection and and as part of that they're rejecting the things like the sexism of PETA and whatnot which I want to talk about what do you what do you I mean uh, um, what what sorts of discussions are you seeing about the the sexism issue uh, well. <laughs> The standard line, of course, in defense of PETA is usually that uh, women make choices, and I think that there's, uh, you know, a certain amount of uh, validity to that. On the other hand, I think that a system that values choices for all individuals uh, also has to hold each of those individuals responsible for their choices. And more importantly, I think it neglects sort of larger stru- social structural questions about patriarchy and uh, male supremacy and so on and so forth. I mean, 
you know, that's, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is, you know, there are a lot of people who just want to silence any criticism of PETA. So they will grasp at any straw and say, oh, well, we shouldn't criticize PETA. Yes, they're, you know, drawing attention to the issue. They're raising awareness. That's what organizations have to do. And there's no critical thinking about that. There's no questioning about whether or not uh, PETA's style of raising awareness is actually raising awareness or what awareness is it raising. Is it properly educating people or is it improperly educating them? Is it is it miseducating them? And I think that, um, you know, the sexism is absolutely terrible. It's completely objectionable. It's an embarrassment. Um, I mean, I can't, I mean, you often reference uh, MLK in your work, but I, I can't possibly imagine, you know, even some of the contemporary academics like, uh, and activists like Bell Hooks or Mike Dyson or Cornell West, um, you know, stripping down and trying to get their message out that way. That would be totally ridiculous. And, and on top of that, they wouldn't be silencing, trying to silence the discussion so that only their voices were the ones that were heard. Um, you know, we fight racism and we fight sexism and we fight heterosexism and ableism and all these other rational prejudices with discussion, with meaningful outreach, with trying to build communities that actually talk about these issues. And it's the exact opposite in the animal advocacy movement. They want to silence any criticism as quickly as possible so that their marketing messages can get out. And I think the sexism issue is a good example. Anyone who disagrees that uh, that Peter's campaigns are sexist is often labeled as you know uh, histrionic or uh, itself a sexist word. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's 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 deeply troubling. I think for anyone who takes sexism and feminism very seriously. Yeah, I mean, I look. I think you know this business that what well, women choose to do it is just such nonsense. I mean, yeah, yeah, they choose to do it, but they're making those choices within a a patriarchal culture. And, and, you know, it's, it's sort of like saying, well, you know, slave, slaves could choose to have sex with their, with their, um, with their owners. Uh, well, yeah, they could, but they were slaves. And the, cho- the choices that they were making and the decisions that they were making were occurring within the context of slavery. Now, it, it, you know, I recognize that the situation of a woman um, in our present culture is, is not the same as that of a slave in, in race-based slavery. But I would still say that, you know, given... Given the the gender roles and given the the phallocentric culture that we have, the choices that these people are making are choices that are occurring within a patriarchal uh, 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 situation. And sort of to say, well, just because women are making those choices, that's a good thing, is so silly. I mean, but but that is one of the one of the. But we've also got to think critically about the idea of choice. I mean, the, the you know the notion of, of choice comes up in. In sociology, in the same way as the notion of free will in in uh, in philosophy. But the thing is, one of the quint- quintessential um, truths sociologically is that there is no choice, no free choice, in a sense, because uh, you know we are free and unfree at the same time. You know, we not nothing that we do is not mediated by society and society's sure. views and norms and values, you know. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, well, slavery is over. Well, you know, slavery uh, is not over in, in, in many um, uh, places. And so what worries me about these sexist campaigns is, is if um, uh, a liberated woman, in inverted commas, in, uh, in the West or the third world or the developed world, all these phrases that we could use, if they choose to uh, go naked uh, rather than w- wear fur and, in a sense, kind of 
choose to commodify themselves, well, you know, that's possibly going to have a very kind of deleterious um, effect on less powerful women in the third world or the developing world or places where trafficking is still uh, prevalent. Um, you know, where, you know, if they're helping create a demand for, for that, ca- that kind of um, service, if you like, in, in sex trafficking, uh, this, this kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, as Vincent said, you know, with, with, with rights, uh, as it were, comes responsibilities, or, you know, with freedoms or choice comes, comes some responsibility. And so we have to think. And I suppose in the patriarchal world, that does um, put some onus on women, you know, in particular, probably a little bit more than men in, in one sense, in, in the sense that, you know, a, a, a woman in, in, in one part of the world exercising choice can have a, a big impact on the way that women in, in other parts of the world are, are, are viewed because it, it's been viewed within that patriarchal culture. And that seems to be the main major structural fact that that, that, that viewpoint about, well, this is just when deciding misses completely yeah i mean the, the, the thing let me let me correct one thing if i if i gave the impression before that i thought slavery was over with um, I mean, race-based slavery in the United States is now illegal. I mean, obviously, slavery exists in other parts of the world, uh, and racism is still rampant in the United States. So I don't want to, I don't want to uh, I don't want you to think that I maintain that slavery is over with or that there is no slavery. Slavery exists in the the the, the different the the thing is that nobody defends slavery anymore um, when it's when it's found when it's discovered. Um, you know, people are critical of it. Nobody tries to say, well, you know. This can be justified or, or whatever. I mean, people are 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 fairly uniform, not completely, but fairly uniformly critical of chat of chattel slavery. Um, but I would also say, Roger, that it's not just a question of like what decisions that are made here, what effect they have on women in other parts of the world. I think that decisions that are made here have effects on women here, and and, and in that they reinforce to the extent that women play into these these uh, uh, patriarchal institutions um, you know can they empower themselves by using sexuality the answer is sure they can but isn't you know uh, but they but 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 they empower themselves by participating in the institutions which have oppressed them and which give them the option of empowering themselves only through methods and means that constitute their and perpetuate their oppression so there's something yeah, I, that. I mean i mean it's 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 crazy and and i think the state of the union undress this year i mean they've done this for the past i don't know two or three years where they they um they have a woman doing a full strip and with the 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 frontal nudity bit and then they you know they intersperse this with the cuts of um of congress and they try to you know and then and they have this woman telling you about all the wonderful things pete has done so that you'll give them money uh this this year they have a woman of color doing it and um the thing it's just so uh in in offensive on so many levels uh that it makes me wonder i mean it's it's almost like if you asked me um what would be if you really wanted to screw things up in the animal rights movement if you really wanted to harm the cause of animal rights what would you do and i said well one thing i might do is have you know have women do strips i, I mean you know, some of these things that peta does are things that you would think 
would be done by an uh, uh, an agent provocateur to 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 to. <laughs> well, if you damage. saw it in a film, you probably wouldn't believe it, would you? That's, uh, that's yeah, the, yeah, I mean that's yeah. the thing. I, I mean, so, some of the stuff that they do is stuff that is just so uh, crazy. But I wanted to ask you a question as as a sociologist, and it goes back to something Vincent said before about. Um, can we really say that the mainstream movement is a movement when, I mean, as much as sociological theory might say that organizations tend to, um, you know, as they as they as time goes on, they get bloated, they become more ineffective, they become you know whatever, um, they still retain some notion of ideology, don't they? Or, I mean, I'm not a sociologist, and I'm asking. I mean, they st- because it just seems to me that the animal movement, the mainstream animal movement, is just so much a business where there is no, uh, Vincent pointed this out before, that there is no discussion. You know, you might have, I mean, people like, like Cornell West or Bell Hooks or, or you know, uh, 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 folks like that, whatever differences there exist um, in terms of their views on civil rights issues uh, or racism issues, there's discussion that goes on. Uh, nobody's trying to shut down the discussion. No one's trying to use coercive tactics to shut down the discussion. Whereas if you asked me for the defining characteristic of the modern animal movement, the mainstream animal movement, I would say it's to shut down discussion. There is no discussion. Yeah, well, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess um, I think there's various answers to that one. I, I guess if if you were to talk to people who are... Um, Involved in the environmental movement, and certainly uh, pe- people who've been involved with feminist uh, movements um, and social organisations uh, over time, they'll probably say there's, uh, you know, quite quite a lot of that of that kind of, uh, uh, you know, power relations going on there, which, which uh, ultimately sh- shut down uh, discourse. What tends to happen, I think, with uh, social movements is that, is that that's what, one of the, the driving forces of all the kind of splits that that, that, that tend tend to uh, occur. But also, I think going back to this theory that I, I mentioned, what, what tends to happen is the business angle of it tends to become into the foreground uh, so much that the other things um, go into the background. And then there's the kind of search then to, well, what, what do we do which will then service the business needs? At, you know, because we've now got a bunch of careerists with good jobs uh, in, in jobs for lives, we've got um, you know a multinational business effectively uh, going on here now, and so then there's a search for well, what do we do? And, and of course, one of the things, one of the products that they produce uh, to maintain this business is victories. That's their product, you know. And then so okay, where where, where do we get our, our victories from? And rather rather than then thinking that every new ethical vegan can be presented as a victories. They want something else than that, and they they then turn for to um, welfare, and they then tend to exaggerate every small thing that they can present as as a victory, and they blow it out of all proportion, like like they have with the uh, controlled atmosphere killing uh, type thing. Um, I think that's what, what what tends to happen is that the, the theory says that ideology is still there, dispute um, goes on. Obviously, in terms of power relations, the powerful try and silence um, the ones with with le- less power. And uh, as we know, until the internet, uh, you were effectively silenced, Gary. We, we you know we, we know that it can't be done anymore. And another interesting thing I think about the internet is that the very the very kind of 
um, reason for having a large business type organization, that's also gone now. And I think, you know, you were talking about the, um, the consciousness of, of, of the younger generation. I think that they are questioning more and more why do we need a, a massive organization like the Pieces and the HSUS? Because we can do it through the internet. Uh, you know, Vin- Vincent does that with, with, with the pamphlets and, and the, 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 you know, the virtual uh, billboard. Um, and people can make their own films now. They can make their own videos. They can, they can get that out. It's very cheap. People can make their own pamphlets. They can make their own leaflets. I think there's still a little bit of a, 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 a clinging on to the past in some senses. I, I get the impression that the, the kind of age, the era of the Peters and the HSUS are coming to a, a kind of natural conclusion in a sense because they're just not needed now. The, the Internet have, have made them redundant. Um, what what uh, what keeps them going is the fact that there's a momentum because it's such a massive thing. And I think what tends to happen uh, in terms of uh, the analysis of Peter from uh, maybe a grassroots position or an animal advocacy uh, position is that um, people are starting to make a, a couple of columns, if you like. People are saying, well, what don't I like about Peter and what do I like about Peter? Well, you know, uh, the, the people that I, that I know would, would have put in the positive column, you know, their pamphlets, their leaflets, and and their videos and their website. That that looks great, doesn't it? And and in in the in the negative side, they would then put things like the, you know the sexist stuff, uh, and uh, you know the, the, that um, the KKK uh, demonstrations. All all the kind of things that are embarrassing. A lot a lot of people are, are saying more and more that that Peter uh, embarrassed them because it pr- provides such easy opportunities for, for, for people opposed to animal rights to attack them. So Peter is an embarrassment to some degree. But the positive side always mitigates against that. And I think what's happening there is the positive side is diminishing and the problem side of Peter is growing. As people see, well, actually, I can do that. I don't need Peter for the videos anymore because we can do that together. You know, two or three people could produce videos, put it on YouTube, um, you know, burn them to, to DVDs, send them around the world. You, you know, the, these massive corporations are no longer needed. And uh, in some senses, Victor Schoenfeld also realized that with, with his analysis of the, of the modern day uh, movement. So he, he's, he's seeing that the, the model that uh, is Peter and the big organizations uh, are not needed. The Internet is there. Uh, the discussion now is there. The different theories are, are around. And it seems to me that um, we, we, we are looking at change, and these big dinosaurs are dying out. Yeah. What do you? What do you? Uh, any uh, any thoughts, Vincent? Uh, well, no, I agree with Roger. I mean, I think that increasingly, um, the internet is is really allowing uh, activists not work together. I think that's very positive. I think the change in computer technology makes it even easier for people to do their own pamphlets, to do their own video material, to do their own podcasts. Um, and that really is changing the game. So I, I agree very strongly with Roger. Um, I think that uh, these groups are an aging paradigm. I think that uh, they won't be with us forever. I think that I also believe that more and more advocates are just finding their own voices. I think that you know social movements they tend to be a little bit staggered, and, and feminism is a good example with different ways. Although. Notions of waves of feminism are a little bit problematic. I mean, the truth is that history progresses in certain ways, um, and I think that's also true of animal advocacy. 
Yeah, no, I think I think uh, I, I I very very strongly agree with uh, with both of you on that. I mean, the, and it's not just PETA; it's it's all of these large organizations. I think this is one of the reasons why they are so desperately clinging to these things like Proposition Two in California, or you know, the controlled atmosphere killing campaign. These are all these are all wor- these are all nonsense. Um, I mean, they're not. I, I mean, to call these things nonsense is to insult things which are truly nonsensical. But um, but I think that that uh, they cling to them because they realize that these are these are some of the things that people can't do necessarily by themselves or in small groups they need a larger organization they need legal staff they need you know they they need lobbyists they need this they need that so they have to sort of keep promoting these welfare reforms that need organizational support uh, they have to keep promoting those things because those are the things that advocates can't do and as soon as people start challenging whether those things are worthwhile to pursue, now you're really attacking the um, the main thing, the the bread and soy margarine that that um, that these folks uh, rely on. Um, because once advocates start seeing that Proposition Two, which is, I, 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 it is boggling to me that anybody thinks that proposition two is a good idea um or that you know or that people got behind that idea um it just it's strike it's just it's remarkable but um but 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 what so what 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 these large organizations are doing is they're looking for the low hanging fruit they're looking for the economically inefficient practices and they're going after them um, and and they're doing it in a way so that it appears as though these things can't be challenged uh, except through a large organization. So you've got to keep you know donating to us when in fact most of these things are going to change anyway because they're economically efficient. Um, Roger and I are busy working on something now uh, talking about how if you take a a uh, an, uh, an abolitionist approach, if you advocate abolition, if you advocate animal rights, if they, if you do that sort of claims making, you're going to end up with welfare reforms anyway. So you don't really need the advocacy of welfare reform, uh, and you don't need these large animal organizations with these large legal staffs and these large lobbying staffs pursuing these welfare reforms because if you if all you did was advocate, if all you did was was advocate for animal rights and abolition, institutional providers would institutional users would respond by making these welfareist changes anyway but in any event i think the takeaway we get from all of this is is that things are changing you know the tide is turning um and um and you know we aren't going to be dominated by these uh these these large organizations uh for much longer it's already changing now people are following their own voices they're 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 reading other things they're listening to other perspectives they're making their decisions they're deciding what arguments appeal to them and what arguments don't appeal to them and i think that uh that what we saw this week i think the schoenfeld thing actually um I, uh, it's gonna it's gonna take a few years to to tell, but I think uh, Schoenfeld not only made the animals film, which I think uh, is is itself a historical matter, uh, a matter of historical importance, but I think we're going to look back on Schoenfeld's uh, BBC documentary, uh, the Animals and Us, and this Guardian article and 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 Newkirk's response. I think we're going to see that as yet another significant um, point in the animal movement because it uh, uh for the reasons we talked about today yeah well, i i th- i think i think that very strongly and precisely because of uh, not only who uh, Alex Schoenfeld is but because of precisely because he went away and came back again 
I think, I think that's very important in, in, in a sense uh, that he, he kind of he, he comes back with a fresh eye and he looks at, uh, at what there is now. He's obviously not very impressed. And in fact, I got the impression that he was uh, maybe a little bit angry about what, what he saw. He, I think he sees waste and he, he, he sees misdirection. And um, I, I, think, I think you're right that people are going to look back at, at this thing. We, we're going to owe a debt of gratitude to Victor Jean-Paul, I think. Yes. Absolutely. Well, look, I want to thank you both very much. Um, I know we, we, we I, I apologize to the listeners. We went on a little long, uh, but obviously you can, you know, sort of decide when you want to sort of listen to to it so you can turn it off and then listen to it some more. Uh, I, I, I thought it was extremely engaging, and I hope you listen to it all in one chunk. In any event, uh, thank you both, Dr. Roger Yates, who uh, is a sociologist, teaches at University College in Dublin and the University of Wales and Bangor, and and um, Vincent Cahane, who is a doctoral student at Carleton University. And, uh, and I really appreciate all your, your insights. Uh, if you are not vegan people, You've got no excuse. Come on. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly easy. It's better for your health. It's better for the planet. It's the morally right thing to do. Uh, check in at www.abolitionistapproach.com. If you go to our links page, uh, you can also find uh, links to Roger's site, which is called on Human Non-Human Relations. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. And Vincent's site, which is Animal Emancipation. That's, I have that right, don't I? Yes. Yes, and you can find uh, you can get links to their sites, um, or uh, follow us on Twitter. But anyway, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with another No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles podcast soon. Thank you very much. Bye bye.